Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. Oh, media, media, media. You are so very playful with the truth. I'm afraid we're going to have to circle the wagons, corner you, and get you to cough up a few hairballs of accuracy. This is a continuing and never-ending series, The Untruths About Donald Trump. We're going to start with Donald Trump apparently calling for the assassination of Hillary Clinton. Does that seem a little bit extreme? Well, you're not wrong in thinking so. What happened? Well, on August 9th, he said, quote, Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish the Second Amendment. By the way, and if she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But I tell you what, that will be a horrible day if Hillary gets to put her judges in right now we're tied. Of course, he's referring to post-Anthony uh, Scalia, uh, that uh, the sort of conservatives and Republicans are tied on the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying that if you're really into the Second Amendment, there may be something you can do to influence um, what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. Does that mean shooting people? I mean, he doesn't say anything of the kind whatsoever. Because not everyone who's theoretically into the Second Amendment or constitutional rights necessarily is a gun owner who's really trigger happy. So he's just saying, you know, if you're really into the Second Amendment, maybe there's something you can do to influence it. There's nothing about shooting or violence or anything like that. So naturally, what did Salon, for instance, say? Quote, did Trump just threaten Hillary? Says Second Amendment people ought to influence Clinton's SCOTUS nominees. <laughs> okay, influence SCOTUS nominees. That's called participating in the political process. I don't think that's the same as a death threat. New York Daily News, quote, Trump appears to encourage gun right advocates to shoot Hillary. <sighs> Man. The Guardian, quote, Donald Trump hints at assassination of Hillary Clinton by gun rights supporters. The Atlantic, is Trump guilty of inciting violence against Clinton? Rolling Stone, Donald Trump hints at Hillary Clinton assassination. PJ Media, did Donald Trump just suggest that his supporters shoot Hillary Clinton? Huffington Post, <laughs> uh, never one to de-escalate. Huffington Post wrote, quote, Donald Trump suggests shooting Hillary Clinton, her Supreme Court picks, or both. Um... <laughs> I don't know. What can you say? The media is on a complete burn their own credibility, I think, to try and get Hillary into the uh, White House, um, which, as her health issues begin to mount, seems to be a somewhat hill too far to climb. But um, that's quite an extrapolation. Clinton campaign statement, quote, This is simple. What Trump is saying is dangerous. A person seeking to be the president of the United States should not suggest violence in any way. Senator Tim Kaine, when I read the quote, I couldn't believe he said it. It's a window into the soul of a person who is just temporarily not suited to the task. <laughs> so all these non-arguments and him say, well, maybe there's something you can do to influence uh, Hillary's um, SCOTUS nominees. Nothing about violence, nothing about shooting people, but never mind. Let's pull the full hysteria uh, alarm system and uh, maybe we can scare people into backing away from Trump. Um, but again, that's not even close. Elizabeth Warren said, quote, Trump makes death threats because he's a pathetic coward who can't handle the fact that he's losing to a girl. Um, Hillary Clinton's in her late 60s. I don't know if it's entirely politically correct, Elizabeth, to refer to her as a girl. Hillary Clinton said, <clears throat> <clears throat> Words matter, my friends. If you are running to be president or you are president of the United States, words can have tremendous consequences. Hey, I wonder if they do while you're secretary of state as well. You know, when you're talking about Gaddafi in Libya, we came, we saw, he died. 
you know, words have tremendous consequences. If you say, for instance, destabilize significant portions of the Middle East, create a power vacuum for crazy fundamentalists to pour in and end up with massive migrations, destabilizing potentially Europe. Ah, What can I tell you? There's only one word that comes to mind for all of that. Deplorable. Trump's senior communications advisor, Jason Miller, said, It's called the power of unification. Second Amendment people have amazing spirit and are tremendously unified, which gives them great political power. And this year they will be voting in record numbers, and it won't be for Hillary Clinton. It will be for Donald Trump. Now, of course, Donald Trump has a pretty good relationship with Second Amendment people. He did get the endorsement of the National Rifle Association. So the fact that he's speaking to his base, telling them to stay involved in politics, it's a long way from ordering a hit. CNN said, A U.S. Secret Service official confirms to CNN the the USSS, United States Secret Service, has spoken to the Trump campaign regarding his Second Amendment comments. Quote, There has been more than one conversation, end quote, on the topic the official told CNN. According to Reuters, quote, a federal official on Wednesday said the U.S. Secret Service had not formally spoken with Republican Donald Trump's presidential campaign regarding his suggestion a day earlier that gun rights activists could stop Democratic rival Hillary Clinton from curtailing their access to firearms. Earlier, CNN had reported that there had been multiple conversations between the campaign and the agency. So, uh, you know, when you've got a secret source... (laughs) Why bother actually speaking to the people who know? Just get the word out there and continue to raise causeless alarm. Donald Trump said, quote, Reuters just announced that Secret Service never spoke to me or my campaign. Made up story by CNN is a hoax. Totally dishonest. This may not be the last time we're going to this particular rhetorical well during the course of this presentation. Ah, the Iraq war. Donald Trump maintains that he did not support the Iraq war from the start. But Hillary Clinton and the mainstream media not only dispute that claim, but suggest that he outright supported the Iraq war. Now, by the by, this is a bit of a tricky issue for Hillary Clinton, for the basic reason that uh, if supporting the Iraq war is a very big, disastrous mistake that Donald Trump should take ownership for, well, he was a private citizen speaking in a private capacity. Hillary Clinton was, of course, a senator who actually voted for the war and has you know, been initiating significant conflicts in the Middle East as Secretary of State subsequent to. So it's a kind of tough thing for them to go after Donald Trump for supporting the war when she actually voted for it. Hillary Clinton said, My opponent was for the war in Iraq. He said he wasn't. You can go back and look at the record. I have taken responsibility for my decision. He refuses to take responsibility for his support. That is a judgment issue. Again, even if it was true, private citizen versus um, somebody who voted for the war. Kind of a different thing. Now, from a book by Donald Trump uh, in January 2000 called The America We Deserve, he wrote, quote, We still don't know what Iraq is up to or whether it has the material to build nuclear weapons. I'm no warmonger, but the fact is, if we decide a strike against Iraq is necessary, it is madness not to carry the mission to its conclusion. When we don't, we have the worst of all worlds. Iraq remains a threat and now has more incentive than ever to attack us. So if a strike against Iraq is necessary, take the mission to its conclusion. Now, this is one of the criticisms people had of the first Gulf War in the 90s. And it's also a criticism that has been significantly leveled against Barack Obama's decision to pull out the vast majority of troops uh, in 2013 or so, that you're not carrying the mission to its conclusion, created a power vacuum in Port ISIS and other fundamentalist uh, groups. And so he's just saying, if you're going to do the war, do it all the way. That's not the same as saying we should do the war. 
if we do the war, we do it all the way. It's not the same as saying, I support the war. Now, the place, the inverted pyramid where everyone hangs their hat on Donald Trump's supposed support for the Iraq war is that Trump appeared on the Howard Stern radio show on September 11th, 2002. Now, this is a full 189 days before the Iraq war started. And it was, of course, the one-year anniversary of the original 9-11 terrorist attacks. So Howard Stern asked Donald Trump if Trump supported the Iraq war. Stern said, are you for invading Iraq? Donald Trump said, yeah, I guess so. I wish the first time it was done correctly. Now, of course, people read this or hear me say it. Let's actually listen to the tonality of what Donald Trump said that day. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, I wish it was. I, I wish the first time it was done correctly. Does that sound like a rah-rah, cheering, enthusiastic support for the war? And remember, not only is it a very tepid, lukewarm, indifferent, and somewhat surprised response to the question, but boy, was there a lot of misinformation floating around about 9-11 and Iraq. I mean, significant portions of Americans thought that Saddam Hussein had personally ordered the attacks on 9-11. There was a lot of misinformation floating around there, and of course, in the lead-up to the war, which Donald Trump talked about in the um, Republican debate. So I think that's a pretty tough place to hang your he's got unbridled support for the Iraq war uh, place. I just don't think it's uh, accurate. Donald Trump, when he um, was reminded about the Howard Stern interview, he said, I wasn't a politician. That was probably the first time anybody asked me that question. But by the time the war started, I was against the war. January 28th, 2003. This is 50 days before the war started. Donald Trump said, quote, well, Bush has either got to do something or not do something. Perhaps, because perhaps he shouldn't be doing it yet. And perhaps we should be waiting for the United Nations, you know. He's under a lot of pressure. I think he's doing a very good job. But of course, if you look at the polls, a lot of people are getting a little tired. I think the Iraq situation is a problem. And I think the economy is a much bigger problem as far as the president is concerned. So again, that is not, let's, let's go to war as quickly as we can. I mean, this is, let's wait for the UN, then maybe we do this, and also focusing on the economy as a bigger problem. Now, in March 2003, Pew Research found that 72% of Americans believed it was the right decision to, quote, use military force in Iraq, while only 22% believed it was the wrong decision. March 19th, 2003. George W. Bush announces the Iraq War starts. Donald Trump, March 21st, 2003, two days after the war starts, quote, Well, I think Wall Street's waiting to see what happens, but even before the fact, they're obviously taking it a bit for granted that it looks like a tremendous success from a military standpoint, and I think this is really nothing compared to what you're going to see after the war is over. So... He's pointing out that the overwhelming ground force and air force of the American military was making mincemeat of the Iraqi army. So pointing out that the war is going well is not the same as endorsing the entire reason for the war being there in the first place. Uh, I can say uh, that someone did a bad thing very well. <laughs> that doesn't mean that I'm endorsing the bad thing. Donald Trump, March 22nd. This is three days after the war starts. Quote, New York is one of the safest cities in the United States. War is depressing, but something like the Miss USA pageant is positive and brings you out of that funk. Again, not a warmonger. He's saying war is depressing, and maybe we can look at some, I don't know, well-polished belly buttons to feel better or something like that. March 25th, 2003, six days after the war starts, quote, 
If they keep fighting it the way they did today, they're going to have a real problem. The war's a mess. I think that just speaks for itself. Donald Trump, July 1st, 2003. Quote, I would love to see New York City and some of the cities and some of the states get some of the money that's going toward Iraq and other places because, you know, they really need it and they need it badly. And again, guns or butter. It's the old... Uh, it's the old equation. If you get guns, you get fewer civilian goods. If you get more civilian goods, fewer guns. So uh, he's pointing out the costs of the war. Donald Trump, September 11, 2003. It wasn't a mistake to fight terrorism and fight it hard. And I guess maybe if I had to do it, I would have fought terrorism, but not necessarily Iraq. Donald Trump, November 4, 2003. Quote, I think Bush's bigger problem is going to be what's happening in Iraq. I believe the economy is doing well, and I think it could get better, but lots of surprises out on the horizon. And what is going to happen with Iraq, what is going to happen with the world situation, that could be the bigger problem that President Bush has. So again, talking about the future uncertainty, this is the same year that the war was declared. And as it turns out, you know, with the hindsight of 13 years almost down the road, yes, lots of surprises in Iraq out on the horizon. He went on to say, quote, It is also tremendous amounts of money being pumped into Iraq. I mean, you look at states like New York and California, where they can't afford school systems, and we are, given, we are giving $87 billion to Iraq, and that is just the beginning. So, you know, it is a tremendous cost to this country, what's going on there. And again, we are getting some very, very unpleasant surprises in Iraq, and hopefully something is going to be done about it quickly. In March 2004, Pew Research found that 60% of Americans believed the United States made the right decision using military force in Iraq, while only 32% believed it was the wrong decision. Donald Trump, July 13, 2004. So he's going against the majority of Americans. Quote, look, the war is a disaster. The war should not have been entered into. To lose all of those thousands and thousands of people on our side and their side. I mean, you have Iraqi kids, not only our soldiers, walking around with no legs, no arms, no faces, all for no reason. It is a disgrace. No matter how much you hate Saddam Hussein, and obviously he was a horror show, he kept terrorists out of Iraq. Donald Trump, August 2014. What was the purpose of this whole thing? Hundreds and hundreds of young people killed. And what about the people coming back with no arms and legs? Not to mention the other side, all those Iraqi kids who've been blown to pieces. And it turned out that all of the reasons for the war were blatantly wrong. All this for nothing. It's a 10-year gap in these two statements. That shows to me at least remarkable consistency. Donald Trump, November 2014. I do not believe that we made the right decision going into Iraq, but, you know, hopefully we'll be getting out. Sean Hannity, a Fox host, has also said multiple times that he and Trump spoke privately at the time and the Republican nominee was, quote, dead set, end quote, against the Iraq war before it even started. So, I think it's fair to say that he's far from a warmonger, had significant reservations, and even before the war started was focusing on other solutions and the need for the economy to improve and so on. The Louisiana flood. Let's talk about this. The recent Louisiana flood killed 13 people, did over $8.7 billion worth of damage, and impacted 60,000 homes, 80% of which are not covered by flood insurance. Despite 
Radio silence from President Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump planned a trip to Louisiana to survey the damage, lend relief, and draw further attention to the crisis. As you know, right? I mean, the the um, uh, the media is attracted to Donald Trump like like ants to a picnic. And so wherever he's going to go, whatever he's going to focus attention on, there are going to be helicopters, there's going to be media, there's going to be spotlights, there's going to be interviews. He is a media magnet, and him going to Louisiana to survey the damage is going to draw significant numbers of donations and national attention to a part of America that was, at the time, and to some degree still is, in significant crisis. Louisiana Democrat Governor John Bell Edwards said on August 19th, quote, We welcome him to Louisiana, but not for a photo op. Instead, we hope he'll consider volunteering or making a sizable donation to the L.A. Flood Relief Fund to help the victims of the storm. So here's the governor who's dealing with a huge crisis, saying, I don't want someone just bungeeing in for a couple of photos and getting out. We really need some help. Um, It's a fair statement. Fortune said, Trump visits Baton Rouge despite governor's request not to. (laughs) Huffington Post, Louisiana governor doesn't want Trump to visit just for a photo op. Atlantic, wanted or not, Trump shows up in Louisiana. Opposing Views wrote, Trump tours Louisiana flood after governor said, don't. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) What are you going to say? If I'm throwing a dinner party and I say, please don't show up in Bermuda shorts and a mesh shirt, um, and then you show up uh, wearing a nice uh, set of business casual, does that mean I never wanted you there in the first place? It's like, no, I just have a basic bare minimum standard for attendance. And if you get over that, you're perfectly welcome. And, um, (sighs) you know, saying that Donald Trump is a sort of publicity hound, well, um, Donald Trump can get publicity anytime he wants, um, but to try and use it for the cause of helping the Louisiana flood victims is using that power for good, I would say. Now, what did Governor, again, Democrat Governor John Bell Edwards uh, say, August 21st, two days after his previous statement, quote, you mischaracterized what I said. I didn't dismiss his trip as a photo op. Before he came down, I said, we welcome him here and we want him to be helpful. And we hope that it doesn't turn into a mere photo op. So you got the story backwards because it helped to shine a spotlight on Louisiana and on the dire situation that we have here. It was helpful. But hey, if you're the media, what do you care about whether things are actually helpful towards the poor people who suffered under the Louisiana flood and a grateful governor who was uh, very appreciative? And of course, you see the videos. You can find these on YouTube. People are like, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So uh, why would you want to listen to people who are actually experiencing help from Donald Trump when you can just make up your own stuff and say he was not welcome in any way, shape or form? Trump personally donated an 18-wheeler full of supplies and made a $100,000 donation to the local Greenwell Springs Baptist Church, which had been serving as a hub for distributing supplies and hot meals. So he flies down, takes time off from his schedule, and um, donates uh, a truck full of supplies, $100,000. You think that might get some positive feedback? No, Washington Post, quote, Did Donald Trump make donations for flood relief in Louisiana? Here's what we know. Daily Chaos, quote, Journalists haven't been able to verify that Trump donated anything at all to Louisiana flood relief. Interim church pastor Tony Perkins said, quote, Since Trump's visit, we have seen an increasing number of volunteers and vitally needed resources arrive from across the country. I'm grateful Donald Trump visited Louisiana. He helped turn the attention of the nation to a devastated region that faces a very long road to recovery. So again, people on the ground, enormously grateful. People who are, say typing in Washington rather than going to Louisiana. Uh, Apparently, I just think that there's nothing but sinister motives going on. Hillary Clinton's statement, quote, 
The best way to help Louisianans affected by these terrible floods is to make sure they have the resources they need today. I am committed to visiting communities affected by these floods at a time when the presence of a political campaign will not disrupt the response to discuss how we can and will rebuild. Right, so this is the excuse that um, it would be disruptive for Hillary Clinton to go to Louisiana. I don't know how or why that's the case. She would bring attention, she would bring media, she would bring all kinds of good things. Uh, I'm sure donations would flow, volunteers would flow, just as they did with... um, with uh, Donald Trump, but she's saying, no, 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 I'd just be in the way. I'd just be disruptive. Well, if you want to become president, I don't think that you want to say, well, I can't really go to where there's an emergency in the country because I'll just be a negative force there for disruption. And I mean, it'll be really terrible for me to be there. (sighs) And apparently this was accepted, I guess, um, fully by the media because um, they didn't say, well, wait a minute, that's not what we said when Bush didn't go to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina uh, quick enough. Uh, we, we ripped him for that, but apparently. Barack Obama did not interrupt his two-week vacation at Martha's Vineyard to visit Louisiana, despite doing so following this two-week golf vacation to widespread criticism. There is no word if Clinton viewed Obama's late visit as disruptive, right? So if it's disruptive for Hillary Clinton, who's just a nominee to go... Um, then it must be much more disruptive for Barack Obama to go. And of course, the media should have said, no, 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 don't go, whatever you do, because it's disruptive. Um, Democrat Governor Edwards attempted to politically shield both Clinton and Obama from criticism by also using the disruptive concern narrative. So, oh, what can I say? Donald Trump goes there and is received gratefully and people are very happy and he does great good. So clearly, he's not being disruptive. With Obama and Clinton, apparently the narrative is really disruptive and negative for them to go. So who do you want to be in charge? The people, like the person who actually gets good things done or the people who view their presence there as disruptive? Crazy. Ah, the New York City Imam murder. On August 13th, 2016, Imam Maulama Akonji and associate Thara Udin was shot and killed after leaving a mosque in Queens, New York. The local community and media wasted no time in blaming Donald Trump for the incident. Resident Karul Islam, quote, That's not what America is about. We blame Donald Trump for this. Trump and his drama has created Islamophobia. Resident Ariel Hussein, quote, We think it's a hate crime. All this Donald Trump, we have been dealing with a lot of hatred lately. The Independent said, quote, Donald Trump blamed for stoking Islamophobia after Imam and assistant shot dead at New York Mosque. So that's the narrative, right? Uh, Donald Trump is responsible for all of this by stoking this Islamophobia. August 14th, um, for those who are counting, that's one day later, police arrested Hispanic man Oscar Morel in connection with the murders, charging him with second-degree murder and criminal possession of a weapon. The New York Post, quote, The motive in the horrific Saturday afternoon killings may be an ongoing feud between Muslims and Hispanics. Sources also pointed to an ongoing feud between Muslims and Hispanics in the neighborhood. A group of Muslims allegedly attacked some Hispanics a few weeks before, and the shooting may have been payback. So, apparently Donald Trump is responsible when a Hispanic murders two Muslims, uh, despite the fact, of course, that the media says that uh, pretty much all Hispanics completely hate Donald Trump. Um, so that's a big problem. The fact that the Donald Trump supporters have been subjected to significant amounts of aggression and violence and egg peltings and being chased through parks and so on when they're trying to get together to celebrate their, their nominee doesn't really 
factor into things. Um, when cops get murdered in the midst of some Black Lives Matter protest and Barack Obama comments, quote, and I understand these protests, I see them, they could be messy, police can get hurt, no responsibility assigned whatsoever. Oh, media, <laughs> stuck in the revolving door of their own swirling whirlpool prejudices, as usual. Ah, yes, Obama, apparently the founder of ISIS, Donald Trump on August the 11th, quote, I call President Obama and Hillary Clinton the founders of ISIS. They are the founders. He went on to say, in fact, I think we will give Hillary Clinton, you know, if you're on a sports team, most valuable player, MVP. ISIS will hand her the most valuable player award. Her only competition is Obama between the two of them. <sighs> so again, people who either don't know the history, which we'll get to in a second, or pretended that they don't know the history, uh, which is less excusable. The Washington Post wrote, Trump's Obama-founded ISIS comment exemplifies why his campaign is on the brink of doom. Newsweek, quote, Donald Trump says Barack Obama founded ISIS. That's not what ISIS says. So apparently ISIS has a lot of credibility to Newsweek. The Huffington Post, experts reject Trump's claim that Obama founded ISIS. The Daily Beast, Donald Trump's new conspiracy spew, Barack Obama founded ISIS. <sighs> Governor Mike Pence, on August the 11th, the media is talking today about another controversy over semantics, and it was Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton that withdrew American forces precipitously without status of forces agreement and created the very vacuum in which ISIS was able to be spawned. So a status uh, of forces agreement is also known as a SOFA. It's an agreement between a host country and a foreign nation that is stationing military forces in that country. It's not the same as an occupation. Um, it's just a comprehensive security arrangement there, there between America and, and Japan, uh, I assume Okinawa and, and Germany and other places. So just pulling the troops out when there was not a stable government in Iraq created a power vacuum that um, uh, was where ISIS began to spawn itself. Most people look Look at Trump's comment like it was sarcasm based around sort of foreign policy decisions made by Obama and Clinton. But there is, in fact, a legitimate factual basis to Trump's assertion, which I'm going to assume Trump is not unaware of. So Kenneth Timmerman from Breitbart wrote, thanks to Judicial Watch, we now have an August 2012 defense intelligence report on the civil war in Syria and the situation in Iraq that openly states that the policy of the United States and its allies was to support the Salafist opposition to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Well, this is uh, very important. He went on to write, quote, In December 2012, thanks in large measure to the active lobbying of Mrs. Clinton and U.S. Ambassador to Syria Robert Ford, Obama declared that the United States considered the opposition as, quote, the legitimate representative of the Syrian people. What was secret until the release of this August 2012 Defense Intelligence Report is that the United States knew that the Syrian opposition was dominated by al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Islamic State of Iraq, groups that merged and morphed into what today we call ISIS. So this is very important. This is from Julian Assange, of course, the founder of uh, WikiLeaks and a man who currently lives in a room with a computer and a treadmill. Quote, so those Hillary Clinton emails, they connect together with the cables that we have published of Hillary Clinton creating a rich picture of how Hillary Clinton performs in office. So, for example, the disastrous, absolutely disastrous intervention in Libya, the destruction of the Gaddafi government, which led to the occupation of ISIS, of large segments of that country, weapons flows going over to Syria, being pushed by Hillary Clinton into jihadists within Syria, including ISIS, that's there in those emails, right? 
So they're supporting a rebel group. This is not a Star Wars situation. They're supporting a rebel group as the legitimate representative of the Syrian people against the Syrian government. Uh, and weapons flows are going there. Other forms of support is going there. And um, how did they get their power? Well, some of it came from the U.S. support and U.S. weapons. Now, Hillary denied knowledge about these shipments during her Benghazi testimony in 2013, despite these shipments happening in 2011. Uh, Julian Assange has, has promised additional evidence to be released on this subject, and many say that this ISIS weapons gate could be the end of her political campaign. Because, of course, uh, if ISIS is the worst thing in the known universe, then the fact that Hillary Clinton uh, knew of or may have been partly responsible for arming them, well, rhymes with reason and starts with a T, but the name escapes me right now. Kenneth R. Timmerman is the author of, quote, Deception, the making of the YouTube video Hillary and Obama blamed for Benghazi, which is uh, well worth checking out. We'll put a link to that below. All right. So Trump manufactures products internationally. Um, Let's check out the timing on this because uh, she might be just a tad late to the party. Hillary Clinton on July 28th, 2016. That would be 2016. Quote, Trump also talks a big game about putting America first. Please explain to me what part of America first leads him to make Trump ties in China, not Colorado. Trump suits in Mexico, not Michigan. Trump furniture in Turkey, not Ohio. Trump picture frames in India, not Wisconsin. Trump says he wants to make America great again. Well, he could start by actually making things in America again. Donald Trump on July 1st, 2015, right? So more than a year, (laughs) almost 13 months prior. He said, I have never been happy about the fact that ties and shirts are made in China. And should I start a new product line somewhere in the future, I would insist that they're made in America. Quite frankly, I was never satisfied with manufacturing my product in China, but because of what they've done in terms of devaluing their currency, it is very hard for other companies to compete and make such apparel in the United States. These are the kind of issues I am committed to addressing. Securing our border, negotiating trade deals that benefit the United States, and bringing jobs back to America is my top priority. Now, the Clinton campaign put together a website showing U.S. businesses which manufacture several products Trump has sold previously. While some are manufactured in the U.S., it is often cost-prohibitive to do so due to government regulations, while other products, like television sets, simply are not manufactured domestically. (laughs) It's funny because, you know, um, Americans make Americans, but they don't always vote for Democrats. So uh, if Democrats are really uh, upset about foreign-born resources, why they keep importing people to (laughs) vote Democrats across the border. Uh, Also, the H-1B visa program uh, is significantly popular among Democrats, and that is bringing people in to do the jobs that Americans would otherwise be very happy in doing, which, you know, you could argue is a little bit more deleterious to the uh, American economy and population than buying a television from China. Donald Trump on October 18th, 2015. I never dispute that. I put it in my speeches. I say it. The ties are made in China and different things. I don't want that. I just ordered 4,000 television sets. You know where they came from? South Korea. I don't want to order them from South Korea. I don't think anybody makes television sets in the United States anymore. I don't want to order from South Korea. I want to order from here. I talk about it all the time. So this is something that an international businessman is going to know very well. If you can't economically sustain the jobs in America, those jobs aren't missing, those jobs aren't there but gone, those jobs are just an illusion. 
you can't have the jobs if you can't economically sustain them. So he's not taking jobs away from America because if he tried to make all these things in America, he would be absolutely uncompetitive and would be unable to sustain whatever business he was working on that relied on that. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that Hillary Clinton, who's never run an international business in her life, is complaining that people are making stuff overseas, while, of course, the Democrats are pumping up huge amounts of regulations and environmental controls and Obamacare and so on, making it very difficult to manufacture things in America. Well, there's ways to solve that. I just don't know if it's going to come from Hillary Clinton. Uh, The New York Times crossing the line article. On May 14th, 2016, the New York Times released an article titled Crossing the Line, How Donald Trump Behaved with Women in Private, which attempted to portray Trump in a negative light. So from the article, quote, Donald J. Trump had barely met Rowan Brewer Lane when he asked her to change out of her clothes. Dun, dun, dun. Donald was having a pool party at mar a Quote, he asked me if I had a swimsuit with me. I said, no, I hadn't intended to swim. He took me into a room and opened drawers and asked me to put on a swimsuit. Okay, for those who don't throw pool parties, if you have a pool party and someone, throws, someone shows up without a bathing suit, it's polite to offer them a bathing suit. Um, he's not trying to get her out of his clothes. I'm sure he wasn't in the room when she changed. He's just saying, oh, it's a pool party. Why don't you have a bathing suit? Now, as soon as this article was published... Uh, the woman was furious with the way her story had been twisted. She said, quote, Trump never made me feel like I was being demeaned in any way. He never offended me in any way. He was very gracious. I saw him around all types of people, around all types of women. He was very kind, thoughtful, generous. You know, he was a gentleman. When asked if Trump has ever mistreated women, Lane responded, not that I've ever seen, absolutely without a doubt, no. So this is just kind of the... Oh, so common lefty irony, which is that in attempting to show that Donald Trump is mistreating women, the New York Times apparently mistreated a woman by twisting her story in a way that she didn't approve of. And um, that's the only person who got harmed in the making of this article was the person uh, that was, uh, according to her, misrepresented by the uh, New York Times. So she said, I wasn't really going to plan on swimming. So he asked me if I wanted a swimsuit. So I said, oh, okay, you know, sure. And I changed into one. I don't know how many other girls feel like they were misquoted, but I know that I, for a fact, that for a fact I was. The way that the article was depicted, and as many times as they promised me they weren't going to do exactly what they did, they probably owe me an apology, and probably him. New York Times reporter Michael Barbaro was asked by CNN's Kate Baldwin if he would apologize to Lane. Quote, None of the facts are in dispute. We quoted her warmly and at length. We really stand by our story. We believe we quoted her fairly and accurately, and we believe the story stands for itself. I'll let you mull that one over, but (laughs) I don't know. Seems like there's a theme. Ah, the California drought. Donald Trump, the rainmaker. (laughs) Donald Trump in California on May 27th. Quote, we're going to solve your water problem. You have a water problem that is so insane. It is so ridiculous where there are taking the water and shoving it out to sea. They don't understand. Nobody understands it. There is no drought. Okay, no no drought in California? Yeah, again, if you don't know the background, and I've actually done two separate videos going into more detail about how government mismanagement, regulations, environmental crap, and so on has caused the water crisis. And um, for those not in the know, yeah, California, kind of like a desert, looks pretty dry. The LA Times said, California's drought, how Trump's blustering caricatured 
a genuine crisis. The Huffington Post wrote, Donald Trump tells drought-plagued Californians there is no drought. Wired, quote, Oh, thank goodness, Donald Trump knows how to fix the drought. (laughs) Wired for snarkiness. Gorka wrote, Water scientist Donald Trump on fixing California's drought. Start opening up the water. Bernie Sanders, quote, You see, we don't fully appreciate the genius of Donald Trump, who knows more than all of the people of California, knows more than all the scientists. Trump knows there is no drought. California Department of Water Resources. All right, so this is what he was talking about. He said they're taking the water and shoving it out to sea. So the California Department of Water Resources said, quote, Ultimately, about a third of the dedicated supply flows out to the Pacific Ocean, in part to meet environmental requirements or to other sail sinks. Okay, a third is quite a lot. You know, a third, if you could suddenly raise California water supply by a third, would there actually be officially a drought? Well, so, and a drought, there's sort of two things, right? So a drought means either a, a period of like dry weather and long dry weather that's injurious to crops, or it means an extended shortage. A drought means an extended shortage. If you say, I'm going through a dating drought, you don't mean that there aren't any women, and just no one who was going to go out with you at the time, right? So he's talking about there's an extended shortage. And why is there a shortage? Because of government mismanagement of these resources and the price incentive. Why is there a shortage problem? Well, environmental regulations have prevented the building of new dams and infrastructure to capture and secure water, right? So there's a rainy season and there's a non-rainy season. When it rains, you capture the water and you use it when it's dry. But no new dams and no infrastructure to capture all of this water means that you're going to run out. Most of the water usage is not residential in California, but from these giant agricultural customers who grow crops like like rice and stuff, which is a significant amount of water. If you see, you see, sorry, laugh, you see rice crops in Japan, like people are half underwater. You takes a lot of water to grow rice. I, I'm not sure the desert. Is, I'm no, I'm no farmer. I'm not sure that a desert is the best place for it, but for various reasons, um, they have it work there. In July 2016. California residents each used 113.5 gallons of water each day. But usage had reached over 200 gallons per capita in recent years. Now, remember, of course, this is all of Californians, including the people who are growing uh, all of these water-intensive crops. So Sydney, Australia has a comparable climate, but only 78.4 gallons of water per capita are used daily, right? So Sydney is a, a city, and so there's not a lot of farming there. But if you look at California as a whole, huge amounts of water being used. Now, you'd think, you know, you always have these scenarios when you're talking about uh, property rights and so on. Well, you're in a desert and and you're dying of thirst and there's a guy there with a water stand, but he's only going to sell you the bottle of water for $5 million. Is that fair and so on? Well, you'd think that in a desert, (laughs) water would be kind of expensive, but no. The California Water Service, which is a government agency, handles water pricing, and thus the prices are not indicative of what a free market would charge taking supply and demand into account. You know that old curve, hey, we're running low on water. I think we're going to jack up the price of water. And of course, California doesn't want to do that because it would make a lot of this, I don't know, Soviet-style, eat-all-the-water-for-future-generation-style farming to be non-viable, which would be a big problem uh, for the farmers and therefore for the politicians. You know, whenever you artificially lower the price of something, you're going to lead to shortages. Imagine if there's a department of $5 Maseratis and you can get a Maserati for $5. How long do you think it would take for the dealership to run out of Maseratis? Well, water and California water pricing, that's what's going on. Is there 
uh, a drought? Well, no. If the government's flushing a third of the water out into the ocean and it's artificially lowering the prices, which increases consumption, it's not a drought in the way that the market would ever have. So that's what people say. And... <laughs> They just don't really understand economics or the amount of control that the government has over water resources and um, water usage in California. The Khan family. Donald Trump came under heavy criticism for, quote, attacking a gold star family in the aftermath of the Democratic National Convention. Muslim parents Kizr Khan and his wife Ghazala Khan appeared at the DNC to criticize Trump's immigration policy in the context of their late son, U.S. Army Captain... Humayun Khan, who was killed in Iraq. Kisra Khan said, Have you even read the United States Constitution? Have you ever been to Arlington Cemetery? Go look at the graves of the brave patriots who died defending America. You will see all faiths, genders, and ethnicities. You have sacrificed nothing and no one. I will gladly lend you my copy. In this document, look for the words, look for the words liberty and equal protection under law. If your candidate wins and he governs the way he has campaigned, my country, this country, will have constitutional crises that have never before happened in the history of the country. So, how is this reported? NPR said GOP criticism mounts as Trump continues attacks on Khan family. Huffington Post. Kisra Khan, father of slain war hero, caused Trump a black soul. BuzzFeed. The father of a slain American Muslim soldier offered Trump his copy of the Constitution. Donald Trump didn't have a lot to say about it, but he did say this. He said, I'd like to hear his wife say something. If you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me. Ghazala Khan, the wife, said, Please, I am very upset when I heard when he said that I didn't say anything. I was in pain. If you were in pain, you fight or you don't say anything. I am not a fighter. I can't fight. So the best thing I do was quiet. Senator John McCain said, In recent days, Donald Trump disparaged a fallen soldier's parents. He has suggested that the likes of their son should not be allowed in the United States. To say nothing of entering its service, I cannot emphasize enough how deeply I disagree with Mr. Trump's statement. I hope Americans understand that the remarks do not represent the views of our Republican Party, its officers, or candidates. Governor John Kasich, quote, there's only one way to talk about Gold Star parents with honor and respect. Captain Khan is a hero. Together, we should pray for his family. Jeb Bush. This is so incredibly disrespectful of a family that endured the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Donald Trump said, While I feel deeply for the loss of his son, Mr. Khan, who has never met me, has no right to stand in front of millions of people and claim I have never read the Constitution, which is false, and say many other inaccurate things. Now, if you're going to, it's my particular perspective, if you're going to bring your son's death into the political arena and use it for political gain, then he's in the arena and you're using it for political gain. You cannot hide behind your son's death to make score political points and then complain if there's any counterpoints made against you. So Kisra Khan previously worked at the Hogan and Hartson Law Firm, which later became Hogan Lovell's LLP, and has legally represented the Saudi Arabian government within the United States. Caitlin Polans from Law.com, quote, Khan spent seven years from 2000 to 2007 in the Washington, D.C. office of then Hogan and Hartson. He served as the firm's manager for litigation technology. I was actually going to look up what litigation technology was, but I fell asleep. 
Joe Schafstall, Washington Free Beacon, quote, Hogan Lovers LLP, another U.S. firm hired by the Saudis, is registered to work for the Royal Embassy of Saudi Arabia through 2016. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has given between 10 and $25 million to the Clinton Foundation, while Friends of Saudi Arabia has contributed between $1 and $5 million. So, you know, Kisra Khan, very, very keen on the U.S. Constitution, very, very keen on equality under the law, has no problem representing the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm no expert on Saudi Arabian law, but I'm not sure that it is wildly committed to the idea of full equality for everyone, males, females, um, non-Muslims, under the law. But if I'm wrong about that, please let me know in the comments below. Nate Raymond, American lawyer, quote, A lawyer at Hogan and Hartson, Howard Topaz, has been Bill and Hillary Clinton's go-to guy for tax advice since 2004, according to documents released Friday by Hillary Clinton's campaign. Patrick Holy from Breitbart, quote, Topaz was a partner at Hogan and Hartson, which later merged to become known as Hogan Lovells, where Topaz continues to practice. The firm's lawyers were major donors to Hillary Clinton's first presidential campaign. And you know why? Because nothing is a coincidence. Now, Khan's own personal law firm, KM Khan Law Office, noted that he specifically represents clients regarding United States visa applications and thus financially benefits from the current U.S. immigration policy. Doesn't mean anything he's saying is false, but there is a potential conflict of interest with regards to this. So according to Khan's website, which was removed once it was discovered, Khan deals with, quote, E2 treaty investors, EB-5 investments, and related immigration services. The EB-5 program is incredibly controversial and has been said to be, quote, riddled with flaws and corruption. Senator Chuck Grassley, Judiciary Committee hearing, quote, The enforcement arm of the Department of Homeland Security wrote an internal memo that raises significant concerns about the program. One section of the memo outlines concerns that it could be used by Iranian operatives to infiltrate the United States. The memo identifies seven major areas of program vulnerability, including the export of sensitive technology, economic espionage, use by foreign government agents and terrorists, investment fraud, illicit finance, and money laundering. I think other than that, it was perfectly fine. Now, equality under the law. In a 1983 journal article, quote, Juristic Classification of Islamic Law, Khan made the case that legal institutions must be subordinate to Sharia law. Kisra Khan, quote, All other juridical works which have been written during more than 13 centuries are very rich and indispensable, but they must always be subordinated to the Sharia and open to reconsideration by all Muslims. Now, are immigration policy proposals unconstitutional? What did Donald Trump say to, quote, attack the Can family? Well, the immigration policy proposals are not unconstitutional. The uh, president has broad discretionary powers to control immigration. And uh, what did he attack? He said the wife didn't say anything. I wonder why. This is scarcely a blistering attack compared to, you know, this is the cry bully phenomenon, right? Compared to Khan's attack on Donald Trump, his response was surprisingly mild. Well, not surprising, actually. I mean, the guy's uh, son did die in Iraq. Ah, uh, Donald Trump, just so scared to debate. We saw this, of course, all the way through when he was hacking down his opponents, 17 strong, to get to be the lead Republican nominee for a presidential candidate. Um, he was just terrified to debate, showed up shaking and sweating. <laughs> 
drinking lots of water. Wait, no, that was someone else. So in September 2015, the Commission on Presidential Debates announced dates for debates between the Republican and Democratic nominees. Monday, September 26th, Monday, October 9th, and Wednesday, October 19th. Trump recently claimed that the debate schedule was unacceptable, noting that the first two debates competed directly with NFL football games, which would eat into their viewership. The media immediately jumped on Trump's unassailable point and spun it as him being afraid to debate Hillary Clinton. Actually, maybe he's just afraid of getting pneumonia. I don't know. But um, Huffington Post, quote, why Trump is afraid of debates now. MSNBC, quote, will Donald Trump chicken out of debating Hillary Clinton? Salon, quote, will the debates finally kill off Trump 2016? The Donald is walking into a disaster. Washington Post, quote, why I'm not convinced Donald Trump will show up at the debates. <laughs> I just, maybe you've got some, you know, there's a football game on. <sighs> now, How wanting the debates to be seen by the largest possible number of viewers is somehow translatable into afraid to debate, well, that explanation is yet to be forthcoming, and I'm going to hold my breath until it comes. (gasps) I'm not, because it's never coming. Now, the moderators for the debates were also announced, and unsurprisingly, the, quote, nonpartisan organization selected four left-leaning individuals, Lester Holt, Anderson Cooper, Martha Radetz, and Chris Wallace. So... That's going to be nice and fair. Ah, the infamous Larry King interview. Shilling for Putin. Donald Trump did a 10-minute phone interview with Larry King on Thursday, September 8th, 2016. The interview was published on RT America, that's Russian television, which is funded by the Russian government. The media immediately tied the short interview into their ongoing Donald Trump slash Vladimir Putin conspiracy theory. Huffington Post. How could Donald Trump have possibly known his RT interview would air on RT? You've never seen such a cunning plot. Well, I don't know. Watch Game of Thrones, maybe. <laughs> Time. Said, Donald Trump bashes U.S. media on state-owned Russian network. Washington Post. Quote, a Trump interview may be crowning glory for RT, a network funded by the Russian government. Business Insider. Trump gave an interview that was carried on a Kremlin-backed Russian news outlet. Chicago Tribune. Quote, congratulations, comrade Trump. You're hired. ABC Trump continues his pro-Russia parade. Now, Donald Trump on Russia attempting to influence the United States election, quote, I think it's probably unlikely. Maybe the Democrats are putting that out. Who knows? If they are doing something, I hope that somebody's going to be able to find it out so they can end it, because that would not be appropriate at all. Right? So don't think they're doing it. But if they do, if the Russians do try to influence the U.S. election, he hopes they're caught and found out. Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway, quote, As you know, former CNN superstar Larry King has a podcast, and Mr. Trump went on his podcast. Nobody said it was going to be on Russian TV. He was doing it as a favor to his friend Larry King. You know, not a massive get. It's 10 minutes on the phone with the guy. Statement from Larry King producers, quote, Politic King with Larry King and Larry King Now are produced and owned entirely by Aura Media LLC, who are solely responsible for its editorial direction. RT America is one of several dozen companies who license these and other Aura programs for distribution around the world. A visit to www.aura.tv will provide several examples of our content. Larry King is a part owner in and employee of Aura Media, LLC, and neither he nor his producers are employed by RT America. Mr. Trump was always booked on Politic King with Larry King for Aura TV. 
So it's a rebroadcast, one of several dozen companies that licensed the content. So he didn't really go on Russian television. Is this what we're dealing with now? That every time you go on some media outlet, you have to check all of the spider webs of where it might uh, end up so that you don't get, I mean, it's just designed to paralyze people. And it's, I don't know, just made up nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Ah, ah, not only contend with shilling for Russian television, Trump apparently encouraged Russian hacking. Donald Trump in a speech said, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. New York Times spun this as, Donald Trump calls on Russia to find Hillary Clinton's missing emails. The Telegraph. Donald Trump calls on Vladimir Putin and Russia to, quote, find Hillary Clinton's missing 30,000 emails. Slate said, Donald Trump's proud ignorance reveals his contempt for the presidency and his supporters. Newsweek. How Vladimir Putin is using Donald Trump to advance... Russia's goals. The Inquisitor. Is Donald Trump a Russian agent? Agent, agent. <laughs> Huffington Post. Donald Trump. I hope Russia hacked Clinton's email servers. And now, just, just by the by, I mean, people make jokes and people say things tongue in cheek and people say things sarcastically. If you want, I don't know, not the 500 to 1,000 people who show up to Hillary Clinton's speeches, but if you want 10 or 15,000 people to show up to your speeches, it's usually a good idea to make them somewhat entertaining and somewhat enjoyable. And every time Trump makes a joke, and we'll get to the baby one in a second, the media is like, he's exactly serious. He wants this. And I don't know, like a lesser man than Trump would say, oh, I guess I better stop making jokes, in which case his speeches become less enjoyable, in which case fewer people come out to see him, and therefore it harms him in his election, right? Attacking people's sense of humor is a great way of preventing them from getting their message out in the most enjoyable format possible. So this is part of what's going on. Clinton policy advisor Jake Sullivan said, quote, This has to be the first time that a major presidential candidate has actively encouraged a foreign power to conduct espionage against his political opponent. This has gone from being a matter of curiosity and a matter of politics to being a national security issue. Well, it's really nice to see a Clinton rep really, really focusing on national security these days. Uh, and that's nice to see. Senator Tim Kaine said, A president was impeached and had to resign over an attack on the DNC during the presidential election in 1972. This is serious business. Trump has openly encouraged Russia to engage in cyber hacking to try to find more emails or materials. And we know that this cyber attack on the DNC was likely done by Russia. See, we know and likely they don't really live in the same logical universe. I'm certain that possibly. Now, according to um, Snowden, uh, if Russian intelligence did hack the DNC, uh, the NSA would pretty much have a handle on that. So I, uh, I wouldn't take that entirely seriously. No proof of anything at this point. Former CIA Director and Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta said, quote, I find these kinds of comments to be totally outrageous. You've got now a presidential candidate who is in fact asking the Russians to engage in American politics. I just think that is beyond the pale. This kind of statement only reflects the fact that Trump truly is not qualified to be President of the United States. Trump policy advisor Stephen Miller said, it is alarming that Leon Panetta would, through his silence, excuse Hillary Clinton's enablement of foreign espionage with her illegal email scheme and her corrupt decision to then destroy those emails and dissemble her private server to hide her crimes from the public and authorities. Hillary Clinton said, The fact that our intelligence professionals are now studying this and taking it seriously raises some grave questions about potential Russian interference with our electoral process. We are facing a very serious concern. 
We've never had a foreign adversarial power be already involved in our electoral process. We've never had a nominee of one of our major parties urging the Russians to hack more. <laughs> I don't know that Hillary Clinton and hacking more should be the same sentence, but that may be just me. Newt Gingrich said, Since Hillary promised us she only deleted 33,000 personal emails, how can it be a national security issue if someone releases them? The media seem more upset by Trump's joke about Russian hacking than by the fact that Hillary's personal server was vulnerable to Russia. Which I think closes the loop fairly, fairly consistently. The Bertha movement. So Hillary Clinton on August 25th, 2016 said, Let's not forget that Trump first gained political prominence leading the charge for the so-called birthers. He promoted the racist lie that President Obama is not really an American citizen part of a sustained effort to delegitimize America's first black president. If President Obama was not an American citizen, he couldn't run for presidency. I mean, is it racist to bring that up with regards to Ted Cruz? If uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I want to run for president, and someone says, well, you can't because you were born in Austria, is that racist? It's just a matter of constitutional fact, isn't it? Now, Donald Trump has been questioned about running for president since at least 1988. That's just public. Privately, we don't know, probably. So the, quote, political prominence assertion is untrue. But who, in fact, was, quote, part of a sustained effort to delegitimize America's first black president? Hillary Clinton. Chief strategist Mark Penn in March 2007 memo to Clinton, quote, all of these articles about Obama's boyhood in Indonesia and his life in Hawaii are geared towards showing his background is diverse, multicultural, and putting it in a new light. It also exposes a very strong weakness for him. His roots to basic American values and culture are at best limited. I cannot imagine America electing a president during a time of war who is not at his center fundamentally American in his thinking and his values. Now, this isn't just some temp. This isn't some intern chief strategist is saying, basically, let's present him as less American because he was Indonesia, Hawaii, and so on. Even though Hawaii, of course, is part of America, it's all very confusing. Mark Penn went on to say, every speech should contain the line that you were born in the middle of America to the middle class in the middle of the last century. And talk about the basic bargain as about the deeply American values you grew up with, learned as a child, and that drive you today. Let's explicitly own American in our programs, the speeches, and the values. He doesn't. Let's add flag symbols to the backgrounds of campaign events. And that's the genius of <laughs> political consultants, why they get paid so much. Let's add flags and complain that Barack Obama is way less American than you are. And then nine years from now, let's complain that... Uh, some guy is saying that <laughs> it's questioning whether or not Obama was born in America. Now, Bloomberg wrote about this memo and said, quote, his memo didn't raise the issue of Obama's citizenship. Furthermore, he was acutely aware of the political danger that a Democrat would court by going after Obama in this way, even subliminally. We are never going to say anything about his background, he wrote. Before the crucial Iowa caucuses in December 2007, an internal Clinton email was discovered by the media from campaign worker Judy Rose, asking whether Obama was a, quote, secret Muslim who intended to destroy America from the inside. Rose was fired upon this media discovery, and days later, a second Clinton staffer resigned for a similar, quote, offense. Barack Obama personal aide Reggie Love describes a Hillary-slash-Obama meeting before the Iowa debate in 2007. 
Quote, Obama very respectfully told her the apology was kind but largely meaningless. Given the emails, it was rumored her camp had been sending out labeling him as a Muslim. Before he could finish his sentence, she exploded on Obama. In a matter of seconds, she went from composed to furious. It had not been Obama's intention to upset her, but he wasn't going to play the fool either. Yes. He's not saying the uh, apology is unnecessary. He's saying it's meaningless because uh, the emails that uh, were rumored her camp had been sending out, labeling him as a Muslim. In February 2008, the Drudge Report published what would come to be known as the Dressed Obama photo. Quote, with a week to go until the Texas and Ohio primaries, stressed Clinton staffers circulated a photo over the weekend that shows the Democrat frontrunner fitted as a Somali elder during a visit to Wajir, a rural area in northeastern Kenya. You can find this uh, all over the internet. So, yeah, there's this photo that makes him look um, foreign, let's say. Obama's campaign manager, David Plouffe, said, on the very day that Senator Clinton is giving a speech about restoring respect for America in the world, her campaign has engaged in the most shameful, offensive fear-mongering we've seen from either party in this election. This is part of a disturbing pattern that led her county chairs to resign in Iowa, her campaign chairman to resign in New Hampshire, and it's exactly the kind of divisive politics that turns away Americans of all parties and diminishes respect for America in the world. Hillary Clinton asked if she believed Senator Obama is a Muslim in March 2008. Quote, of course not. There's no basis for that. I take him on the basis of what he says. And, you know, there isn't any reason to doubt that. No, there's nothing to, to base that on. As far as I know. Donald Trump didn't mention Barack Obama's citizenship or birth location until 2011, when it was already a story. But Hillary Clinton and her surrogates used similar information when campaigning against Obama in 2008. The Mexico visit... Ah, we come back like a whiplash to the current day. The day before he was set to deliver his immigration policy speech in Arizona, Donald Trump announced that he would also be meeting in Mexico with Mexican President Peña Nieto mere hours before his highly anticipated policy address. The New York Times wrote, quote, Donald Trump to visit Mexico after more than a year of mocking it. The trip is, his latest, is the latest gamble for Mr. Trump and his struggling campaign. Washington Post. Donald Trump's high-risk, low-reward trip to Mexico is sort of baffling. <laughs> you, you can look up something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, I just wanted to mention to whoever wrote this, just because you find something baffling doesn't mean that it objectively is baffling. <laughs> the most successful politician of a generation is doing something I don't understand, therefore it must be a mistake. <laughs> Politico wrote, Trump takes risky gamble with Mexico trip. Mother Jones is Donald Trump walking into a Mexican trap? Talking Points memo, quote, Can Trump be this stupid? Not a trick question. After what was universally viewed as a massive strategic and optic win for Donald Trump's campaign, the media desperately attempted to find some kind of negative spin because, you know, the meeting went well and he was well received and it looked, you know, pretty presidential for Donald Trump to go and visit Mexico at a time when Hillary Clinton couldn't even be bothered to go and visit Louisiana and pull people out of the water. Huffington Post, quote, Mexican President Peña Nieto says Trump lied about paying for wall. The Daily Beast, Donald Trump to Mexico's Enrique Peña Nieto. What wall? Donald Trump said, 
Who pays for the wall? We didn't discuss. We did discuss the wall. We didn't discuss payment of the wall. That will be at a later date. This was a very preliminary meeting. It was an excellent meeting. It's so genius that this is how smart the guy is, right? He said, we didn't discuss payment of the wall. That will be at a later date. In other words, when he's president. Again, see, he's just programming people to accept that he's going to be president. Mexican President Peña Nieto said, at the start of the conversation with Donald Trump, I made it clear that Mexico will not pay for the wall. So he said this, you know, he got some particularly harsh feedback from his uh, constituents and other people in Mexico uh, when Donald Trump said that this was not part of the conversation. Donald Trump said, oh, it'll happen at the right time. It'll happen. I mean, this is just the beginning of a negotiation. If I win, if I become president, Mexico will pay for the wall. He, you know, rightfully said, I know their position for a long time. They say they don't want to pay for the wall. They're not going to pay for the wall. And every negotiation starts that way. But Mexico will pay for the wall. Rudy Giuliani, of course, was at the meeting and said, we had ground rules for this meeting. And one of the ground rules was we weren't going to discuss paying for the wall because that's not something we're going to agree about. What we wanted to do was find areas of common agreement. And maybe the president's staff didn't brief him on it. Maybe the president forgot it, but he brought it up. It wasn't at the beginning. It was sort of in the middle of the sentence. And I just briefly said, that's not on the table. And the reality is they have a disagreement over that. So this is important. Trump said, who pays for the wall? We didn't discuss. We did discuss the wall. We didn't discuss payment of the wall. So if the guy brings it up and you don't respond to it, there's no discussion whatsoever. So he's accurate. Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta said, quote, Donald Trump has made his outlandish policy of forcing Mexico to pay for his giant wall the centerpiece of his campaign. But at the first opportunity to make good on his offensive campaign promises, Trump choked. It turns out Trump didn't just choke, he got beat in the room and lied about it. Was the guy at the meeting? No. Was there any transcript or recording or video of the meeting? No. So, <laughs> I, you, know, you can make up anything you want about a meeting that you weren't part of. It wasn't recorded. After the meeting, many news outlets in Mexico commented that Trump had overshadowed and outclassed their president, who defended himself to the press by claiming he was only looking out for the welfare of Mexico. Donald Trump. If you look at what happened, look at the aftermath. These people who arranged the trip to Mexico have been forced out of the government. Mexico's former minister of finance, Luis Vidigaray Caso, resigned following Trump's visit. Vidigaray had been one of the main proponents of inviting both Trump and Hillary Clinton to meet with Mexican President Nieto. Um, I guess maybe Hillary Clinton thought that they were going to meet in Louisiana and wouldn't go. Hillary Clinton said, People have to get to know that they can count on you, that you won't say one thing one day and something totally different the next. And it certainly takes more than trying to make up for a year of insults and insinuations by dropping in on our neighbors for a few hours and then flying home again. Yeah, that's right. I think it's true that people don't want to hear you say one thing and something different the next day, you know, like about uh, whether you sent or received classified emails, uh, like why you seemed to faint uh, during the 9-11 ceremony. Were you um, overheated? Were you dehydrated? Oh, no, it turns out you had pneumonia. So, yeah, that kind of consistency can be very helpful in establishing trust. The great softening of Donald Trump. So after Trump met with the National Hispanic Advisory Council, Univision and BuzzFeed, 
reported what would come to be known as the softening in regards to Donald Trump's proposed immigration policy. Univision said, quote, Trump now says he plans to legalize some undocumented immigrants. BuzzFeed said, in reversal, Trump indicates to Hispanic leaders openness to legalization for immigrants. Univision said, sources tell Univision that Trump plans to announce a major shift on immigration policy next week. Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump plans to present an immigration plan in Colorado Thursday that will include legalizing millions of undocumented immigrants, according to three people present at a meeting. The candidate attended Saturday with Hispanic leaders at Trump Tower in New York. BuzzFeed. In a Saturday meeting with his newly announced Hispanic Advisory Council, Donald Trump suggested he is interested in figuring out a, quote, humane and efficient, end quote, manner to deal with immigrants in the country illegally, according to three sources. Importantly, Trump did not explicitly use the word legalization at the meeting, but sources in the room said they feel it is the direction the campaign is going. Yeah, because... Objective facts versus feelings. Ah, Reality does not care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings, uh, as some say. And so they're talking about, oh, yeah, no, he's going to legalize. Did he use the word legalizing? No. But we feel that's where he's heading. (laughs) That's not news. Uh, That's indigestion. GOP Hispanic Communications Director Helen Acquire-Ferre said, quote, Mr. Trump did not say he was in favor of legalization. What Mr. Trump said was very clear. Some folks talked about legalization, not citizenship, for the undocumented. Mr. Trump did not say he was in favor of legalization. Some folks may have felt that he was open to it, and he gave zero indication of that. So, great news gathering, everyone. Trump campaign rapid response director Stephen Chung said, quote, Mr. Trump said nothing today that he hasn't said many times before, including in his convention speech. Enforce our immigration laws, uphold the Constitution, and be fair and humane while putting American workers first. Today's conversation was productive and enlightening, and Mr. Trump looks forward to speaking with these leaders again soon and often. The reports from the Trump-hostile outlets were immediately refuted, yet the illusion remained that Trump was softening on his immigration policy. Because media apparently is Latin for mad wish fulfillment. Newsweek, quote, Is Donald Trump softening his illegal immigration stance? Bloomberg, Donald Trump opens door to softening mass deportation plan. Mother Jones, Is Donald Trump softening even more on immigration? NBC, Solving the mystery of Donald Trump's missing immigration policy. Hint, it's on the web. Boston Globe, Donald Trump may be considering his biggest flip plot yet. The Independent, Donald Trump on the defensive, over plans to deport 11 million illegal immigrants after campaign hints at retreat. Inquisitor, Donald Trump, immigration, flip-flop, backlash, and more. Now, I have a theory. I'll tell you about it in a sec. So Donald Trump then gave a speech on August 31st, 2016, which focused specifically on his immigration policy. Quote, We will break the cycle of amnesty and illegal immigration. We will break the cycle. There will be no amnesty. People will know that you can't just smuggle in, hunker down, and wait to be legalized. It's not going to work that way. Those days are over. Donald Trump also used the increased media attention his, quote, softening brought to the immigration speech to highlight parents whose children were killed by illegal immigrants, bringing them up onto the stage with him. It's almost, almost 
possibly like he planned this all along to bring attention to his policy and the damage of illegal immigration. So if for some reason people think he's softening, a lot more people, including those on the left, are going to tune into his immigration speech, hoping to watch him fold um, like a, uh, <laughs> a deflating balloon. So if lots of people are tuning in and then he says, no, I'm not changing and brings out all of the people whose family members were killed by illegal immigrants, well, that's quite effective. And I think this is the kind of chess that he's playing. Three dimensions doesn't do it justice. Donald Trump on September 1st. Oh, there's a softening. Look, we do it in a very humane way and we're going to see with the people that are in the country. Obviously, I want to get the gang members out, the drug peddlers out. I want to get the drug dealers out. We've got a lot of people in this country that you can't have. And those people will get out. And then we're going to make a decision at a later date once everything is stabilized. I think you're going to see there's really quite a bit of softening. The only softening apparent in Trump's immigration policy is the language he uses to describe it. If he's satisfied Ann Coulter on immigration, I don't think that could really be characterized as a softening. The Star of Doom comes down like a dagger on Donald Trump's campaign. On July 2nd, 2016, Donald Trump tweeted an image of Hillary Clinton over a background of U.S. dollars with the caption, History Made, and Most Corrupt Candidate Ever, written on a red star. Along with the meme, Trump's tweet text said, Crooked Hillary makes history. The media went mad, (laughs) calling his tweet anti-Semitic, because it used a six-pointed star in its design, despite the fact that six-pointed stars are very common clip art in many basic paint-style art programs. And despite the fact that I think, as of now, two of Trump's children have married Jews. Um, Worst anti-Semite ever. The Huffington Post said, Donald Trump launches blatantly anti-Semitic attack against Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's not Jewish. Anyway, um, Mike said, Donald Trump's star of David Hillary Clinton meme was created by white supremacists. Time, Trump's star of David tweet gives anti-Semitism free reign. Salon, Trump's Profitable bigotry, the takeaway from his anti-Semitic tweet, his run is more a grift than a real campaign. Washington Post, Trump's vigorous defense of anti-Semitic images, a turning point for many Jews. Now, Trump took down the tweet a few hours later, replacing the red star with a red circle. An early version of the original meme was found on 4chan, leading the media to claim the meme was created by white supremacists and neo-Nazis. You know, it's like this Pepe thing where uh, someone tweeted uh, Pepe, oh, it's you know, white supremacist, racist, anti- whatever it is. But, you know, when Katy Perry six months ago tweeted a Pepe meme, didn't matter. It's just, it's a meme. It's not an entire philosophy. Mike said, no, the, the website, of note is the file name of the photo. Hillhistory.jpg, potentially a nod to the neo-Nazi code for HH, or Heil Hitler, which the alt-right is fond of hiding in plain sight. So there are two H's in something that refers to Hillary, therefore it could be Heil Hitler. Reach! (sighs) Clinton campaign's director of Jewish outreach. Okay, let's just... (laughs) Let's just pause there. And note that that's a job, a real job. Clinton campaign's director of Jewish outreach, Sarah Bard, said, quote, Donald Trump's use of a blatantly anti-Semitic image from racist websites to promote his campaign would be disturbing enough. But the fact that it's a part of a pattern should give voters major cause for concern, troll. Concern, sorry, not troll. Now, not only won't he apologize for it, he's peddling lies and blaming others. Oh, yeah. Because... Apologizing to the left always works so well. You know, it calms them down. They sit down for a reasonable conversation. They never escalate after you apologize. 
quote Republican Paul Ryan. Look, anti-Semitic images, they've got no place in a presidential campaign. Candidates should know that. The tweet's been deleted. I don't know what. Flunky put this up there. They've obviously got to fix that. We've got to get back to the issues that matter to the public. I really believe he's got to clean up the way his new media works. I don't know, Paul, maybe uh, get back to the issues that matter to the public. It's a matter of the public, like really opening the borders and refusing to pass a budget because that would cause you to cut spending. Yeah, that's really Republican of you. Trump campaign social media director Dan Scavino. The social media graphic used this weekend was not created by the campaign, nor was it sourced from an anti-Semitic site. It was lifted from an anti-Hillary Twitter user where countless images appear. So see now, this is the way the internet works. If you retweet, and you know, retweets don't count, everyone knows, right? But if you retweet any image, any source, anything, you have to find it very back to its very source, whether it is forged in the fires of Vesuvius or landed on an asteroid. You've got to go back and find the source. And once you find the source, you have to trace it everywhere it's been and everyone it's ever gone through to make sure that nobody who's even remotely unsavory has ever used or posted. Yeah, you find something, you use it, and then people get hysterical and go looking for stuff that looks bad. And what's this supposed to do? It's, most, it's supposed to make you afraid to post anything, which lowers your reach, which lowers your voting uh, patterns and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, Donald Trump. These false attacks by Hillary Clinton trying to link the star of David with a basic star often used by sheriffs who deal with criminals and criminal behavior. Showing an inscription that says crooked Hillary is the most corrupt candidate ever with anti-Semitism is ridiculous. Donald Trump Jr. When people throw out the racism card or the anti-Semite card, hey, racism, anti-Semitism, all of these things are real issues in this country. They are real issues in this country and frankly across the world. When the left throws it out there every time they can't win an argument, it's their ace in the hole. Well, I think this is blue. You think it's green. You must be a racist. You're doing a major disservice to the people who are actually afflicted by that plight. It's a shame that it's just thrown around there haphazardly, so stupidly. You know, Trump may love America, but don't you know, he just hates babies. So when a baby started crying during Trump's August 2nd, 2016 speech, he commented, quote, Don't worry about that baby. I love babies. I hear that baby crying. I like it. What a baby. What a beautiful baby. Don't worry. Don't worry. The mom's running around like, don't worry about it. You know, it's young and beautiful and healthy, and that's what we want. One minute later, Trump joked, actually, I was only kidding. You can get that baby out of here. I think she really believed me that I love having a baby crying while I'm speaking. The media, of course, reported Trump's joke as a serious statement, all the while claiming the conservatives are humorless. New York Post, quote, Trump loves crying baby, then kicks the tot out of his rally. <laughs> that's right. It was a full-on... Diaper punt right over the right over the wall. The Hill wrote, Trump moves to eject crying baby from rally. It sounds like he's got some like uh, Dungeons and Dragons catapult or something. Politico, Trump at rally. Get the baby out of here. NPR, Trump, get that baby out of here. <laughs> what is he, Ron Paul? New York Daily News. What a baby. Donald Trump booted a fussy baby from a rally Tuesday because the taunt was wailing over the businessman's speech. The Guardian. Donald Trump's treatment of a crying baby reveals a total lack of empathy. Donald Trump, August 5th, 2016. The press came out with the headlines, Trump throws baby out of arena. So dishonest. I mean, these are dishonest people. I could give you 20 stories like that. <sighs> Everyone's having fun. We're smiling. I'm waving. Everyone's having fun. But they say Trump throws baby out. You know how terrible that is? 
It's such a lie and they know it's a lie. Mother Devon Ebert. Again, do, do you want to hear from women or the actual mom or the people who were there? <laughs> of course not. She said, I was the mother in Israeli on Tuesday, August 2nd in Ashburn, Virginia, with the baby who started to cry. I would just like him to know personally that I by no means felt I was ever kicked out of his rally. I realize Mr. Trump doesn't know me personally, but for those that do, know that I am the first one to excuse myself and my child when he begins to cry because I personally believe it's rude to disturb anyone else's ability to hear what they came to see. I fully support Mr. Trump. I thought he responded very graciously to my child crying, and he made a light-hearted moment out of what I usually consider to be stressful. I actually was out of the auditorium before he even made his follow-up comment about my child, and even then, when I was informed of his comment, I laughed. So, you see, the baby was already gone when he made his joke. She went on to say, I am in no way offended, and I again reiterate, Mr. Trump never kicked me or my child out of the Briar Woods High School Trump rally. I apologize for the trouble that this has caused Mr. Trump. The media has severely blown this out of proportion and made it out to be something that it wasn't and is clearly using this as political gain for the Democratic Party. In a follow-up interview, Sean Hannity asked Ebert what she learned from the situation and she replied, don't trust what you hear the media reporting. Uh, All of this, you know, one of the things that I have popularized to some degree is the phrase, not an argument. Uh, And this is um, basically what all of this boils down to, is that when you get these media manipulations designed to give you a visceral negative emotional reaction to Donald Trump, they're not trying to hit your brain, they're trying to hit your lizard brain, like your, your fight or flight mechanism, so that you can't listen to anything reasonable and to give you a sense of danger and imminent disaster and doom and fascism and whatever it is. It's not an argument, uh, and it is really pitiful. And people who have good arguments, they tend to make arguments. People who don't have good arguments tend to appeal to to fear and to other base or negative emotions in order to get you to do what they want when they can't bring any good facts to the case. So, you know, stay alert to this. This is a great education about what the media is doing, uh, not just in America, but throughout most of the Western world when it comes to very, very important issues these days. It's just a bunch of uh, emotional spears set up against the horses of reason designed to keep them out of rational uh, fields of discussion. So I hope that you will continue to be skeptical about what is said by the media uh, about everything. I think it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, place to start. And of course, if you do enjoy these kinds of presentations, please like and subscribe and share. And we do, of course, really, really appreciate support. Uh, this kind of work uh, takes a lot of resources and we really, really need your support to continue to do the work that we're doing. So please, please go to freedomainradio.com slash donate uh, to help on, on the show. Uh, help out the show. You can set up a subscription. We take lots of uh, variety of payments and so on. So we'd really, really appreciate it if you could do that. You can, of course, also follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Thank you so much, everyone, for watching and listening. Look forward to your comments and feedback below. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.